0: hello will hello david hello listeners here's something a little different back in april of 2018 we did a live stream called sloth chat it was a follow-up from episode 24 which was about sloths where we were joined by two sloth scientists to answer sloth questions from our sloth interested listeners
1: yeah it was sparked when one of them contacted us to help us update one of our blog post facts and then the conversation continued. Well, now as we approach the anniversary,
0: the one-year anniversary of that event, we are releasing the audio. So what you're going to hear here in just a bit is the audio of Sloth Chat. In case you, ha- you didn't get a chance to see it or you don't want to watch it on YouTube, you can listen to it here on the podcast feed. This is the original audio that you would have heard on YouTube. It's been edited a little bit, pared down, shortened a little bit. It's still youtube audio like we didn't what we should have done is record (laughs) each track separately but we did not do that so this is all one track we were learning back then there's a little bit of audio wonkiness every now and then especially from ryan's end because he was in a car yes
1: the entire time
0: but it's still pretty good so you'll still get to hear us chatting about sloths and, and learning all sorts of fascinating stuff and as always if you like stuff like this let us know maybe we'll do more in the future
1: absolutely it was a lot of fun and uh worked out surprisingly well for our second ever real attempt at live streaming stuff so it was pretty cool indeed well without further
0: ado uh we hope you enjoy the format's different from a usual episode the audio's a little bit different but otherwise as usual you're listening to the common descent podcast will hello david hello ryan hello and hello robert hello and hello youtube i see in the chat that people can hear us hopefully you can see us now i'll find out the answer to that in about 10 seconds once Mm -hmm. the lag catches up we are the half of us are the common descent podcast for anybody joining us who doesn't know us will and myself Run the Common Descent podcast where we talk about paleontology and life history and evolution and all sorts of fun topics. Episode 24 of the Common Descent podcast was about sloths. And after that episode, a listener of ours named Alexandra on Twitter tweeted us, these two gentlemen and the one other person who is missing, Dr. Becky Cliff, who is unfortunately not here. I'll explain that in a second. Way after that tweet went out, all three people got back to us and said that they would love to talk about sloths with us. And thus, Sloth Talk was born. So let's uh, real quick have people introduce themselves. Let's start with you, Ryan. Who are you and what do you do?
2: Hi, my name is Ryan Haupt. I am a sloth. I call myself a sloth ecologist slash (coughs) paleoecologist. And I study mostly diet and trying to connect the chemical signals of diet in modern sloths to their fossil relatives. So I work a lot with both modern sloths and with fossils uh, and the techniques I use are both chemical and physical, so stable isotope analysis and um, dental microwear, So teeth and, and things like that. And you
0: are joining us intrepidly from I'm intrepidly i'm on
2: the road i'm not driving i'm on my way back to uh, washington dc where i live i am currently a research fellow at the smithsonian in the department of paleobiology while i finish up my phd at the university of wyoming and you also have a podcast. I do have a podcast. I do a podcast called Science Sort of, uh, which sort of, it, it sort of covers science. It's uh, things that are science, things that are sort of science, and things that wish they were science. It's um, a show we started when I was an undergrad, so it's coming up on its 10-year anniversary next year, and we basically drink beer and talk about science. It's not too dissimilar from this, just with a broader focus on all different kinds of science. And Robert. Hello,
3: I'm Robert McAfee. I'm a Assistant Professor of Human Anatomy at Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine in Georgia, Georgia campus. It's a big mouthful. I've been into sloths for a long, long time, mostly doing functional anatomy or functional morphology and anatomy, so trying to recreate how sloths did what they did in their environments, although a lot of times lately it ends up being issues of taxonomy that make me go back and re-question examine what are the specimens we're looking at first and foremost, and while Ryan calls himself a sloth, I call myself a slothologist. <laughs> <laughs> courtesy of my for- former graduate advisor who said, Yeah, let's call ourselves slothologists. <laughs> People go, Is that a word? Like, if we keep using it enough, it certainly is. That's <laughs> how language works. Yes, yes, it is.
2: I uh, put into Google Translate one time I was working on something that I was double checking my Spanish on. And so I'd written that I was a sloth uh, scientist and Google Translate just translated it to lazy scientist. <laughs> and that <I> was, <laughs> I was like, thanks, Google. Appreciate you. Excellent. Somebody <laughs> at Google knows.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, uh, in our advertisement for this event, we also advertised being joined by Dr. Rebecca Cliff who unfortunately has been held up by a literal natural disaster. Yep. Um, she was on her way back to her home, but they, hey, the road on her path over in Costa Rica has been blocked by a landslide. So she is safe, uh, last we know, but stuck uh, in a bus that is not moving, unfortunately.
1: Which as far as excuses go, is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Yet somehow not surprising from her. Like, of course you... <laughs>
2: not going to landslide. <laughs>
0: Typical. Well, if anyone's going to be late, it's going to be a sloth researcher,
2: I think. I feel like we should... some sort of Gandalf quote would be appropriate here. <laughs> we arrive precisely when we mean to. Yes.
0: So unfortunately, uh, Becky won't be joining us for this unless she magically shows up partway through, in which case we'll invite her in. If not, we'll see if we can uh, put something together with her later on indeed in the meantime the basic approach to this event is over the next hour or so we are going to pepper these two gentlemen with questions that we have sub- uh, that have been submitted by our listeners on the internet on twitter on facebook uh, a couple of other places as well and just have them answer people's curiosities about slots Along the way, if you are here and in the chat, and we have a few people in the chat, it looks like if you have a question that comes up during, we'll be keeping an eye on the chat, and we'll see if we can grab one of yours. We've got a bunch of questions. We probably won't get to it, to all of them, unfortunately, but both of these folks are on Twitter, and both of these folks can be sound, uh, found, uh, presumably, in some other places, so before we get started, normally you do this at the end. Where can we find you? But I'm going to do it at the beginning so people actually hear it. If people, if there's a question that people have or people want to follow up with you, where can they find you? Ryan?
2: Uh, I'm on Twitter at Haupt, and my website is ryanhaupt.com, and my podcast website is scienceworld.com, and the podcast is available Probably wherever, in the same place they get Common Descent, I'm sure they can also get my podcast. So check me out in all those places and always happy to uh, go back and forth on Twitter about whatever slothy questions people have.
3: Excellent. And Robert? I can be found on Twitter at DocSloth. And I do have a website, horribly out of date and needs some work, but still has some basic contact information. <laughs> it's uh, SlothSearch.com. So let's
0: jump right in. And let's see, let's see, let's see. So the first question that I want to ask both of you to get a little bit of a sense of your perspective on your work. This is a question from me. <laughs> we'll start with, uh, let's start with Robert. I've been starting with Ryan the whole time. Robert, what are some of the unique aspects, the unique situations, the unique challenges that you encounter studying sloths? that you wouldn't necessarily find with other animals.
3: Oh, wow, that's a good one. (laughs) That (laughs) journalism background. (laughs) I'm slightly stumped on that one. Uh, You could pass the ball if you want. Send it over to Ryan. No, I gotta man up and do it. (laughs) Person up, I should say. Person up. Person up. I guess at least for me, and again, this isn't going to apply universally, but sloths did spend most of their evolution... The tertiary down in South America. There were some that came up to North America, but for some of the questions I want to answer, the wonderful myelodontids, they usually have to make long extravagant trips to get to the museums to see the specimens I want to see. So At least that's kind of my biggest issue, and at least with that, sometimes it's also dealing with some museum curation and catalog efforts that are far behind the times, but hopefully they are getting better
0: that's a good that's a good and so the, yeah you have to go to place the places where the fossils actually are okay.
3: and so and for instance right them. now i'm currently going down to the caribbean to the dominican republic so we've got some new specimens coming out of some wonderful caves that i have some examples i can show later
0: so you case, as as part of your job uh robert you you are you're forced to go down to the caribbean and <laughs> spend time in the 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 horrible tropical islands and such.
3: <laughs> no horrible. <laughs> my, my next trip is coming up in a couple of weeks.
1: Very oh, that's cool. nice. Yeah.
3: Um, I don't think we have Ryan at the moment,
0: so I'm going to go ahead and bring up our first question for Robert. Let's start with, this question came from Thomas on Facebook, via you, actually. Thomas asks, is there any evidence of predation or scavenging on the fossils of giant
3: ground sloths? Yes. Ooh. Now you want elaboration.
1: Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, All right, cool, moving cool. on. Moving on, next question. <laughs>
3: no, there is. Um. Um, the last few years there's been a couple of uh, specimens that have come to light. The one that comes to mind, there was a femur of megalonics found up around Cleveland that had evidence of butcher marks on it. So they did some fine close-up examination and saw that it had you know, human interactions and basically taking some sort of cleaver and chopping away what would have been very prominent flesh on that massive ground sloth leg. And I know there are some other examples that have come out of South America, similar things as well. In terms of animal predation, there's not as much. I know there's always the classic example from the tar pits where you've got Smilodon jumping on the back of probably paramylodon, and I gotta say that always irks me because I always go, "There's no direct evidence." I <clears throat> <laughs> also have these arguments with my uh, advisor in graduate school. She did both sloths and saber-toothed cats, so she's she'd always say, "I study the prey and the predation and the predator." Said,
0: nice. But there's no evidence that they were the prey. <laughs> but it's fun. It's fun to and think I about. Yeah,
1: uh, I I did always think that when I was younger, and I'd see pictures of the the on just leaping directly onto the back of a giant sloth. It's like if I could pick a different prey, I would. That <laughs> would not be my first choice. I it does seem
3: like a, a, a tough prey horror. option. What was that, Robert? I'm sorry. I imagine that the giant sloth smelled horrible. Because I always thought about this, too. So, what are the other animals? You know, think paleo-Indians who, in cave paintings or totems, making depictions of the things that they hunted. There's not really any sloths in that uh, record, is there? Mm-mm. If That's some an interesting young, point. young native is going out and saying, I'm going to make a man of myself and do this hunt... <laughs> I hope I'm not stereotyping here. But who wants to have the credit of, young man, you made your first kill? What did you kill and come back with? I killed a sloth. Really? <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't have upped your difficulty there? Hey, Ryan's back. Hey, hey sorry about that.
2: Well, you're in a car, so. Flight <laughs> battery. We're, happy actually, to... we're, we're plugged in now and everything's good.
0: Uh, one of our audience members will fill up this conversation with Robert real quick. Uh, with this question from Beige in the chat, who said, I wonder what sloth tastes like. Would, would Robert or Ryan, either of you, have any insights? What would sloth taste like? I'd like to know.
2: I wouldn't. Oh. Um, <laughs> they The modern sloths have almost no body fat. And so if you're looking for like a well-marbled sloth steak, you're going to be very disappointed. The, the meat, I imagine, would be very stringy. Uh, you'd have to introduce a lot of flavor. I'm guessing you'd have to go slow and low. Um, if we're going to keep it with sort of a Central American vibe, I'm thinking like a Ropa Vieja might be a good sloth preparation, you know, it's kind of a a stringy meat stew with some tomatoes and a lot of heavy spices but otherwise i don't think just a, a salt and grilled piece of sloth meat is going to be a very satisfying meal for folks
1: so it's like <laughs>
2: like the peely string cheese like
1: just very yeah
2: And i mean most most of their body you know like 25 percent of their body or up to a third of their body weight is just their stomach so like if you want to eat sloth haggis that's, what it <laughs> that's so like exactly just... what i was just <laughs> ag- yeah. plants Like, if you've ever wanted to eat the bag off the end of your lawnmower, that's about what you're going to be getting, I'm guessing, with sloth haggis.
0: (laughs) Now, Robert, uh, that describes modern sloths. But your interest is largely in the big extinct sloths. I can't imagine that they had the same muscle-to-body ratio.
3: No, because they were actually more active. Mm -hmm. So the modern sloths are just trying to be as passive as possible. And a good example of this, if you look at the ones... get the pictures of them on the ground turned across the road they look like they're very pathetic and anemic just kind of crawling army crawling their way yeah there we go but apparently the young ones actually still have or still kind of have some vim and are full of vigor can actually kind of put themselves up in a quadrupedal position but as they get older from spending more of their time just hanging and not actually using the muscles they tend to crawl so the fossil ones with the larger body mass and actually being terrestrial at least a lot of them would have been terrestrial would have been more mobile, more active, so bigger and better muscle mass, especially as they got towards the megatherium size. And, okay, <clears throat> good. But I, yeah. I do want to say for the, <laughs> I, I knew a guy in grad school who had actually eaten live sloth, or modern sloth, I should say, but he uh, he did say that, yeah, it was basically served kind of in a soup and that it was very bland and nothing to really to write home about. Oh, well, that's, that's a little disappointing.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, fat is flavor. There's no fat. There's no
0: flavor. It's a good point. Very true. So speaking of this contrast between ground and uh, tree sloths, let's aim this question at Ryan. This is a sloth evolution question from Nikolai on Twitter, who asks, do we have any hypothesis as to why three toed and two toed sloths evolved tree climbing from terrestrial ancestors in the first place?
2: That's a really good question. It's um, a little hard to answer why questions about evolution. Evolution just does whatever it does to to propagate a, a genetic lineage. But to kind of think about some of the um, advantages or adaptations that would have been beneficial for a tree based lifestyle. Uh, I think actually you there's there's a huge untapped wealth of calories in the canopy in the form of leaves. And there are very few vertebrates that uh, consume primarily leaves. So you have things like pandas and koalas and uh, some of the b- bigger apes like gorillas, but even then they'll supplement with fruits, but you you have this um, relatively untapped resource in the neotropics. So there's not nothing else really up there besides maybe a howler monkey. That's also trying to eat all these leaves. And so it's a vast wealth of food resources, but, It's calorically sparse, so you have to be able to eat a lot of them to survive. And so if you've got a big fermenting stomach, if you can get yourself small enough that it's still advantageous to climb and you can manage to not get so small that you can't ferment these leaves, then you've got a pretty good uh, balance there between your uh, body mass and the food available around you. And it's a resource that no one else was using. So that's probably one of the reasons they went up into the trees. And Robert... Uh,
0: contrasting that with the big ground sloths do you think that that unique habitat choice might have anything to do with why the big ground sloths from the uh, you know down on the terrestrial realm aren't with us anymore and the tree dwellers are
3: to some extent yeah i mean we're still trying to recreate a lot of what the paleo diet was and I know ryan's getting closer to answering good aspects of that with his work but i mean with a lot of the mainland terrestrial stuff megafauna all went out so whatever affected the other terrestrial megafauna also would have impacted the sloth so if it was i mean they were rather diverse and into a lot of places but even just still didn't save them
2: Mm -hmm. well and as you guys talked about in your sloth episode tree sloths are kind of the aberrant sloths and in that they are very small and live in a habitat that as far as we can tell there weren't really other sloths around doing And the place extinction was an extinction where things above a certain mass were the ones that were seen targeted. And so it could have just been that tree sloths were small enough to slip through whatever that filter was that led all the larger sloths to being taken out.
0: It's a very good point. Here's a question from, uh, so this is a, so here's a morphology question. We'll give this one to uh, Robert, the functional morphology guy. Uh, Don on Facebook shared with us a picture. Will, if you want to bring that picture up.
1: Absolutely. Will's the guy in the chair, everybody. Yeah, I'm, I'm for playing cameraman today.
0: Don brings up a picture of a sloth humorous and remarks that it doesn't look very much like what you normally expect a humorous to look like in other animals. And he asks, why do sloths, I love this question, why do sloths and their close relatives look like they've half melted or like Salvador Dali painted them? Why are sloth bones so weird?
1: Yes. Ah,
3: that is a good question. Uh, part of it comes from their ancestral state. So we're talking about a group of animals whose, evolved, whose closest living relatives are anteaters and armadillos. So a lot of the retained morphology is from this armadillo lifestyle, which was somewhat relegated for digging, but as you went towards the anteater lineage, which they split off more recently from, you've got adaptations for kind of this insectivory, but you're still able to do digging. And with regard to gentlemen's gentleman's picture he showed up something that looks kind of like this. Ooh, visual aids.
1: Nice. So
3: this is a uh, this is a sloth humerus from Parochnis from Hispaniola Dominican Republic. And this is the posterior view. So this is the distal end where I'm tapping here. Proximal, we would look at it more like this. If I can get out of the way so the
0: distal end is down here
3: at the elbow. Mm-hmm. And the proximal end is up at the shoulder. So the head or what's left up here. So what we're looking at from the front here is what we call the deltopectoral crest. So it's where the muscle attaches for the both the deltoid muscle and the pectoral. But as they increase in size, this tends to get this feature tends to get rather bigger and broader and more robust. Just because of the overall mass, they're trying to move a lot more. So the muscle needs to be bigger, the pole needs to be stronger to give you the corresponding strength. So in that sense, it does look rather weird. But if you look at, again, say an armadillo or an anteater, it looks pretty much on par. But again, if you do put it upside down and backwards, yeah, it looks a little nothing. <laughs> and especially, I'm guessing, that picture he she had was of, a, I'm guessing, a myelodontid just from the look of it. And that's, again, if you were to flip that around and see from the interior side, that deltopectoral crest or shelf would be broader and more developed than mm-hmm. this you know, the smaller body parochus.
2: And weren't myelodontids also thought to be somewhat digging diggers?
3: Yes, yes. That myodontids are more at the base of the sloth tree, so they're be closer to that kind of armadillo, anteater ancestor.
2: I always think about that line from Jurassic Park of like, "You'll never get Grant out of Wyoming. He's a digger." <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: that's a good point because when I looked at that picture, it reminds me of if you've ever looked at a mole humerus. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's just the weirdest. They look. Yep. They don't look like a humerus at all. It looks mm-hmm. like some weird dental tool. I mean,
1: it's, it's almost crescent shaped. Yeah, it looks like a double-ended battle axe. Yes, it does. <laughs> like a, like a bat lift.
3: Yes. <laughs> yeah, and you get into a lot of the other elements and they're equally weird and bizarre looking. The ankle bone itself is really <laughs> bizarre. <laughs> and the hips
0: are, if you ever go to a museum, uh, dear viewers, and see a sloth mount, their hips are just like a big bowl.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: It's very, they're, they're, they're just very strange skeletoned creatures. Here's a question from Andrew on Facebook. We'll have Ryan start us off on this one. So Andrew has heard that there are not much, uh, there's not much in the way of fossil record of tree slots. He asks, given that tree slots are almost completely arboreal, is there any likelihood of ever finding much of a fossil record? Are there special conditions in forests that do allow for fossilization?
2: Yeah, this is kind of an open question in paleontology. You know, the paleontology of the tropics is, um, I don't want to say super recent, but it's a more recent area of exploitation than your classic fossil sites of, of deserts and arid environments. So just the the wetness of the tropics and the quick turnover of the soil and the immense plant coverage make it very difficult to, uh, as you guys suggested in the episode about sloths, it is an unlikely to preserve type of lifestyle and environment. Um, that being said, there is always a possibility that under exceptional conditions, you could get some level of preservation. I mean, if there was an exceptionally calm lake that happened to be, you know, like you've got these lakes like uh, Lago Nicaragua and Licanagua, this huge lake. If it was, uh, if there was something like that in the deep past that was near a sloth tree and it fell in, it just got gently covered and then somehow got, exposed you know i had the opportunity to go um do some digging for fossils in panama along the panama canal and i was i kept my eyes peeled for a sloth we didn't find one but um it's always a possibility that there's that's the great thing about paleontology is there's always a possibility you're gonna find something that you didn't anticipate um but andrew the the questioner is correct in assuming that the Um, prior probability of an arboreal sloth fossil is lower than other types of sloth fossils out there. So not zero, but not great.
0: I guess we do have a a record of things like monkeys, you know, Mm -hmm. it does happen occasionally. So,
2: you know, monkeys have, they have enamel on their teeth, which preserves better than soft sloth teeth.
0: That is a very good point that that I didn't think about.
2: Yeah. You can identify, you can name a new species of monkey off of one well-preserved molar But sloths, as you guys talked about in your episode, they don't have a lot of dental Hmm. variation. Uh, They kind of just have pegs and cones. And so it's going to be harder, even if it's a softer tooth. And then even if it does preserve, it's less diagnostic than something like a monkey tooth.
0: Now, Ryan has brought up our episode a couple of times in what what sounds like a complimentary fashion. So (laughs) I want to bring up something that Robert mentioned jeez. Oh, <laughs> right. Good cop, bad cop. After our episode, so Robert had a minor grievance minor to bring up with us. Please, <laughs> please explain to our viewers. So, view, uh, listeners, viewers, episode 24, like I said, was all about sloths. Um, if you want to learn sort of the basic overview, check that out. But yes, afterward, Robert said, Hey, now,
3: uh, please explain. I was hoping you were going to explain. I don't remember what I wrote. <laughs> uh,
0: you, you mentioned we uh, it was something about megatherium size, I think.
3: Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. The,
0: the yes. largest. Yes.
3: yes, the largest. Oh. And so it was, again, kind of goes to the idea of the progression of the evolution, but megatherium as the genus is the one that has the species that got the largest. That would be megatherium americanum. Mm-hmm. Right. But there were a number of other megatherium species that were not as big, so not quite a progression of size but different ones that were filling other niches that didn't need to have quite the bulk and the mass that americanum took on later on so to
0: say that it's it's not quite as accurate to say megatherium was the biggest in north america as it is to say a particular species of megatherium was the best Mm
3: -hmm.
2: yeah have you guys done an episode on cope's rule yet no, not yet. Oh, that'd be a fun one. <laughs> so that,
0: oh, I'll put that on because the
2: list. <laughs> something like <laughs> the, by something like the progression of ground sloths would be a great you know it's a great case study and that sort of trend towards larger 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 body sizes over time. So yeah, for anybody who's
0: listening who hasn't heard of that Cope's rule, uh, put forth by Cope himself, uh, yeah, yeah does remember. suggest that organisms, animals specifically, tend to get larger over time, which holds true sometimes. Mm-hmm. in some famous cases um but yes so no robert you you tweeted at us with a uh, but the minor uh <clears throat> clarification which is great we always want to hear people, absolutely no uh, we appreciate uh, it clarifying. especially in episodes that will plant so.
1: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> don't
3: correct my episode let me say that I, I thought i loved the episode i thought it was great
1: so. thank, thank you. you very much anyway you don't get to take uh. credit after that comment no, <laughs> thank you. I, I wrangled Will. I, I made
0: sure that it all went really well. <laughs> Here's a question. This is a question about uh phylogeny. So let's start with uh Ryan on this one. Although I'm sure either one of you would have a comment. Uh this is a very technical question from Hans on Facebook. So I'll I'll ask the question and then I'll explain it a little bit for anybody who's not uh up to date on cladistic terminology. Hans asks, are sloths and other xenarthrins, xenarthrins are the group that includes sloths, armadillos, anteaters, and so on, is this group generally considered the outgroup to other placentals? And if so, do they have unique traits that could potentially be ancestral to placentals that are lacking in the other groups? So to explain that a little bit for our listeners, an outgroup is basically just the most distant relative of a group of relatives so if you're hanging out at your family reunion it's you and all your cousins are related through your grandmother your second cousins are related through your great grandmother so they're the out group in that sense they're one step out this question is asking is that the case with Sloss and their relatives and if so do they have any features that might give us clues to that origin that great ancestor mm-hmm.
2: As far as I know, this is still an active area of research that people are still looking at uh, carefully and trying to figure out the exact interrelationships of mammals at the base of the mammal family tree. And sloths, uh, you know, as you guys talked about in your episodes, the narthrins are definitely their own group. That is very clear. Uh, whether or not they're the outgroup to placentals, I believe, is, is still not solved 100%. And then, in terms, but I, I also do believe that they are considered to be more basal as a mammalian group than other more derived groups uh, to use, you know, I know sometimes we say primitive in advance, but those those words have connotations. And so to avoid value judgments, we we try to say basal and derived. But then within Xenarthra, the Xenarthans that are alive today are pretty derived relative to what those earliest Xenarthrans would have been. I mean, that earliest Xenarthran was probably some sort of insectivorous, medium-sized, shaggy, osteodermed, armadillo-anteater- monster thing um so i I don't really know if that's a good representation i mean i I think it probably better represents early basal traits of Xenarthrins than it does mammalians as a whole so that's kind of my take but robert might have more information than i do
3: yeah uh pretty much spot on mostly the same um most of what we know is from molecular data molecular Mm -hmm. that have been done which puts the of loss at about i want to say 100 106 million years ago so well back in the Cretaceous, before the actual dinosaurs went out. As to what that thing would have looked like, Lord only knows, but most of the studies place them, as Ryan said, as rather basal near the bottom of the tree of placentals in a group called Afrotheria, which has yeah. a lot of other kind of basal mammals. There were ones that became more basal later, so oh, what am I thinking of? Uh, tree shrews. Well, Afrotheria
2: contained things like hyraxes and elephant yeah. shrews and modern elephants and manatees. Yeah, all of those.
3: So yeah. And then as for what we could learn about basal mammals, as Ryan said, we're, we're dealing with at least the modern groups today, highly derived. But even with the fossil record, the earliest ones show up at best in the Oligocene, but it's already fully formed into armadillos and sloths. We don't really have a great record for anteaters. But a lot of that early stuff then, uh, the Oligocene, even Eocene is so fragmentary. They're just naming new things because... They don't have enough to go on to say it can't be
2: <laughs> right. Like like and all that. So this
1: is
0: this is something that comes up a lot in evolutionary questions of, of things where you have a group that theoretically is the primitive version of something like monotremes, like the platypus. Mm-hmm. And it's tempting to say, well, let's look at the platypus to see what the ancient mammals were like because they lay eggs and they don't, you know, produce milk quite the same way. But as you guys have pointed out, these are also very much evolved away from what their ancestry would have been. Mm-hmm. So they, while they have some of those features, they're so weird that it's very difficult to to generalize about those traits.
2: Yeah, I like to say that in terms of evolution, you know, something like a sponge, the most simple mammal or the most simple animal that exists a sponge is just as evolved as you and i mm. we've all been evolving for the same amount of time and so if you've survived until today you're just as evolved as everything else that survived till today because you all survived and that's you know the, the act of survival is an evolutionary process
1: yes i i like that that way of wording it because that was something that used to always you know not bother me necessarily but just kind of throw me off when i be in science class and they'd be like well, you know, lungfish are a lot. You know, are great examples of what the fish that would have given rise to first you know, mm-hmm. tetrapods might have looked like. And I was like, but would they? Like, <laughs> <Yeah.
2: why laughs> are they really?
1: Because I mean, they're. Still, I have a. They're here doing. I have a major
2: thing. pet peeve with the term "living fossil." I don't think it's a helpful term at all. <laughs> Thank you. We,
0: that's going to be an episode. At is some an form. episode, yeah. Oh, excellent, <laughs> excellent.
3: <laughs> I can see I how have, it comes about, though, because we're trying to wrap our minds around these things. Kind of like you were talking about the last episode about deep time, that humans aren't really adept at understanding or being able to conceptualize deep time. Yeah. So try to imagine a fossil ancestor or transitional. We, grab the things we can kind of see and know and go well maybe kind of mm-hmm. well, when you get yeah. things
1: like uh horseshoe crabs which are very you know, popular at the aquarium where i work and everything
2: i saw one today in, in a touch aquarium touch yeah. tank
1: yeah and it's <laughs> that comes up all the time with them where it's like yes but if they've been here this long looking so much the way they do what else or what else are we supposed to call them and so i get where successful successful we call them a I successful
2: stra- it's a yes. very successful strategy and design that has stood the test of time yes um, we should we should call them like like, you know, you have those classic car shows. We should have like yeah. classic, classic phyla.
0: I like that horseshoe classic. I, right. The little
3: horseshoe swoop. Like,
1: horseshoe XL. <laughs> Coop. My favorite uh, thing I saw for it was a picture of a horseshoe crab and it said check for updates. And uh, it said no updates <laughs> required. <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh, man.
0: So, um, Robert, let's talk a bit more about ground slots yes please thomas asks on facebook were ground sloths cave dwellers and if so is there any correlation between ground sloth populations and available caves in the area
2: yeah and i know ryan can speak on this too because he's worked on. oh it yeah this is a great question i just yeah. i have to butt in to say that <laughs> it really is i'm excited yeah it is
3: so yeah we have a lot of cave evidence there where they're actually using them um, both in South America, a little bit in Central America, though not as much just because the fossil record is, and a lot in North America. For North America, the original one, first one that was found in North America by Thomas Jefferson in a cave in West Virginia. And we've got a lot of other records of megalonics. that one we now know as megalonics jeffersoni, from caves. And in fact, there's not too far from me, <clears throat> over in Alabama, there's an old cave site that was done about the 80s where they had actually a number of with seems to be familial groups occupying this cave, or at least they have the leftover remains, and a couple where it had clearly a much larger adult and then a couple that were clearly juveniles, so using it back and forth. And in the southwest with Nototheriops, Chastensis using caves, coming Mm -hmm. and going, they've got layers of dung balls and middens that just shows they were coming back and using these caves time and time again.
0: Interesting. That's an interesting point that there's ways to tell that your animals were actually using these caves as opposed to the caves just happening to be the places that fossilized and collected them. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and there are, there are cave sites out there where you can tell that the animals are in the cave because of some trauma that occurred. Either they were injured and went to the cave to try to uh, recover or they fell into a sinkhole and were injured you know, in, in injuries that didn't really heal before they died. And we don't see that with sloths. Sloths seem to be in the caves on purpose. They seem to have gone in there and um, based on some of the climate data, we see that the sloths were occupying the caves during periods of climatic cooling. And so it's possible that they were also not great at thermoregulating, much like their modern uh, relatives. And so they might have been using the caves as thermal refuges where um, cave temperature is a more steady, stable state than staying up on the surface. So when it was cool or when when the sloths got chilly, maybe they were going into the caves to stay warm. And then some of them inevitably died there. But the fact that we have all this uh, fecal material shows that they were staying in the cave long enough that they were needing to go to the bathroom and, and stuff like that. So that's really interesting. And then my my quibble with episode 24 <laughs> uh, was oh, <laughs> Thomas Jefferson did not discover the megalonyx bones. They were sent to him by the landowner uh, after being discovered by some saltpeter miners, uh, n- niter miners, as it was called back then. Uh, and that was an important component in gunpowder, which is an important part of our early economy. And so they were um, preserved in essentially um, fermented bat guano, uh, fermented mineralized bat guano that um, were uncovered when they were digging up the saltpeter, and probably making moonshine if we're being perfectly honest um, and the bones were sent to monticello and thomas jefferson wrote the description he wrote you know the complete description which was then read at the american philosophical society in 1799 yes. so i also yes. love love the idea that thomas jefferson is writing about these animals like 60 plus years before origin of the species like he just mm-hmm, they had yes. no idea of any uh the how different our perspective on these animals would become yes no and that that's that absolutely
1: it? uh true i when, when we went over it i think i skipped the, the discovery of it more and focused on his his description but that is it's also a, a cool story just because it's how often do you hear about uh published presidents
2: Right, I yeah. A vice, a, I don't think our vice president currently is going to be writing any scientific articles anytime soon. Right, exactly. So I think that's,
1: oh, okay. Probably not.
3: <laughs> None of them get past actual peer review. Yeah, we're
1: not. Gonna <laughs> <see>. <laughs> we won't see them in SVP.
3: So let's let's
0: see. Let's ask a question about living sloths. I know that Ryan has done some work with living sloths, mm-hmm. and we'll see if you can answer this. This was a question that I was going to ask Becky, so we'll see if you can fill in. Lauren on Facebook asked if. Sloths today have any medical issues related to their inactivity, such hmm. as she suggests arthritis, but anything that you know being slow causes trouble.
1: Bed sores.
2: That's actually an interesting question. If in captivity they can get things like bed sores if they're not given enough room to move around or or things to hang on. Um so that is an issue. Uh as far as we know, you know, the main health issues related to their slowness come from the fact that our world, the human world, just moves at a different speed, and that speed is not very compatible with their lifestyle. So what we're seeing as the uh, infrastructure of places like Central and South America is developed, it, both in terms of increased uh, increased amounts of power lines, increased roads, and also deforestation and the uh, advent of monoculture farming, which uh, reduces overall forest diversity. I think those are having more negative health effects than their slowness, so their slowness makes it more difficult for them to adapt to those conditions, and their inability to cross a road safely um, is a function of their slowness and a huge health hazard, because if you can't get across a road quickly enough, I get sent probably... Once every couple of months, I get sent a new video of somebody stopping to help a sloth cross the road. And the video is always sent with, oh, isn't this sweet? This person stopped to help this sloth cross the road. And I'm like, yes, but think about how trivial it would be just to hang a few ropes between the trees at intervals, just like we do with animal crossings here. And, you know, the western part of the United States, where we have like these pronghorn migrations and these pronghorns need safe ways to get across the roads. Otherwise, you risk traffic accidents, you risk human fatalities, and you're risking the lives of these animals. Um... To speak more to the health issues about things like arthritis, that's also a really interesting question because our knowledge of modern sloths is so limited. They're so difficult to study, both because they don't do well in captivity and because of their extreme slowness. We actually don't have a great sense of what the signs of senescence or the signs of aging are in a sloth. So we don't really know what an old sloth looks like. Um, the three-toed sloth uh, buttercup, the mascot, the mascota of of the sloth sanctuary of Costa Rica, has been in captivity for uh, 20, 25 years and goes into estrus still once a month. So she's a 25-year-old mammal that's only a few pounds, so she's the size of a medium-sized dog, and yet at 25 years old, she is showing no real signs of old age. So we really don't know how long these animals can potentially live because of their slow metabolism. And so we don't know what, what might happen as they actually get old. Wow. That's really interesting. Isn't that They're cool? Just, yeah. Their
0: physiology and life history just doesn't match up with what we expect.
2: And it just makes it, yeah. It's just hard to study because you know, 20, 25 years, that's the career of a scientist. So you just yeah. you can't spend that entire time on the life history of a single animal and, and have a uh, productive career.
0: Uh, so in the chat, I want to highlight some of these chat comments. Uh, something ugly. That's the username, not my own judgment on this person. <laughs> suggests horseshoe crab legacy edition, which I like quite a bit. I like that um, too. Um, a couple people asking, commenting on that solution to the problem: uh, land bridges over roads for animals. Yeah, there's a bunch of places in the world. I I talked to some people. I did. I wrote a, a story about mm-hmm. the work being done in Los Angeles actually to create bridges over the highways for mountain lions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm across from place to place it's really striking to think that how like you said how easy would it be for a sloth you don't have to build right. a bridge you just make a pole or something that you know crosses over the top because
2: the, the other issue is i mean um it it's Sad to talk about, but this is the reality of working with a place like the sloth sanctuary. But you do see we you know they get a fair number of sloths that are electrocuted because they try to climb on power lines to get across roads and stuff. So yeah, um, it's not you know it's not and you know, in a place that's wet like the tropics, if you're dripping wet all the time or it's constantly raining and you try to climb on a power line, that's not gonna go well. Yeah.
0: Uh, another comment that was a little bit further back in the chat, um, going back to ground slots and caves, mm-hmm. Robert Obviously, those big claws and those wonky-looking arm bones are good for digging. Were sloths using their teeth for digging?
2: Oh, and Robert, can I also ask: Do we see any like arthritic-looking joints in fossil sloths? Oh,
0: answer that first. That's a good question.
3: Yes, and I was going to chime in with that, but yeah, well, there is some. Oh, oh sorry. Of, yeah, go right ahead. There is some evidence of arthritis in some fossil sloths thinking of the best examples I saw were at when last time was at the Page Museum, the La Brea Tar Pits Museum in Los Angeles, just because of the sheer volume they have. Mm-hmm. They've got a full section, just a, a full cabinet section just devoted to pathological specimens, and there's some that are showing it's either arthritic damage that has healed and become arthritic as a nature, but I also just reviewed a paper a couple months ago looking at just general arthritis that they could, uh, rheumatologists and arth- people who study arth- arthritis we're actually identifying in other just regular ground fossils or ground sloth fossils, and that might
2: also be a function of ground sloths actually had to support their weight against gravity, where tree sloths don't really have that problem. If you're suspensory, you're not, you, you're maybe your joints just don't get that much wear and tear. Mm-hmm.
3: No, in fact, the whole suspensory thing is actually designed to be. It's kind of an interlocking or a locking mechanism with the tendons, just to make <laughs> it a very passive process. The claws are there and they're locked, but they're not spending any muscle energy.
2: Yeah. And, I, and you know, you talked a little bit of in episode 24 about the evolution of that suspensory posture as being this really interesting, unique mode for an animal. And I think a big part of that is <laughs> it's a very energy efficient way to climb once you evolve essentially a clasping mm-hmm. hand. So uh, what kind of what Robert's saying is that a sloth is relaxed when it's gripping something. So all the muscles right. are relaxed when it's gripping. Mm-hmm. And so it's not exerting any energy to hang there. And it's not trying to support its own weight against gravity. Uh, bats are the same way. If you ever go into like a very old house, you can actually find bat skeletons still clinging to the ceiling because when they die, <laughs> they just stay gripping on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so I sloths are see. like that. So yeah, so so for them, hanging on a, a limb is exerting almost no energy.
0: So before we get to that other question, actually, Robert, to follow-up on that, we talked about predation, signs of predation in sloths and now arthritis. How much How much do we know about pathology in sloths?
3: Not a whole lot. In fact, with the samples I've got from the cave sites we've been, or we've been working in the uh, Dominican Republic, we've got a couple specimens that show evidence of damage that happened in life that healed, and the sloth kept on going. In one case, it's a femur that looks like it had a break mid-shaft, and it's just horribly arthritic. Wow. If you want, I can share some photos of this afterwards if you want to put it on yes the absolutely table. another one is a radius that is just it didn't even look like a race i thought it was someone's rib from somewhere <laughs> another animal's <laughs> rib because it was unsorted in the drawer wait, wait a minute that's actually a sloth radius but they broke wow. and they kept on doing whatever they needed to do despite whatever muscle changes had to happen so at least in this case you know rather resilient animals who will just keep going
0: wow Impress i can imagine a sloth just trucking along
1: yeah
0: yeah you know, just tanking it Taking an injury and moving on pretty much. You got it with a broken femur though. Jeez. Especially for an animal of that size. Yeah. this thing That's got to a tough life.
3: We were talking earlier about, it. I was working on SVP abstracts for the meeting coming up. And my, one of my co-or or collaborators down there, we're going to do a poster on some of those pathologies for the conference. Hopefully as Very long as it gets accepted, come on by and check it
0: out. <laughs> yeah, no, if we're there, we will definitely come check it out. Uh, going back to that digging question. Yes. Um It's obvious. Yeah, and there, there are those big, potential sloth burrows with claw marks in the, the mm-hmm. walls and ceilings. Were they, use, were they using their teeth at all for excavation?
3: I can't see that they would because the teeth for the most part are not anywhere near the anterior part of the jaw. Um, I'm going to go back it's to that,
2: the they totally lack incisors, right? They don't have yeah. these front teeth right here.
3: I'm going to go just... back to visual aid real quick. Oh, please do this they were probably that quite lippy. This is a uh, again paracynus, so here's here's the M1, here's the canina form, and what's missing here broken is the predental spout which should have extended out about this far. So this is where their mouth would have been anterior portion. Their mouth yes. would have been ending out here. So they're most of this loss, I mean the modern ones don't have as much of a predental spout, but most of the fossil ones had a really well-developed predental spout extending anteriorly, and so that's where the lips would have attached and been ending. Not all of them have this kind of well-developed canina form, if they do, sometimes it's actually back even further by the molars. Okay. So the there was not really, I mean, in this case, it kind of looks, you know, almost like because it's broken and you know, it was like, oh yeah, some sort of, you know, tough digging thing could have done it. But in reality, it was too far back for them to, to use it in any sort of digging feeding behavior.
2: You're saying we couldn't use, uh, there's no truffle sloths, like there are truffle pigs.
3: <laughs> <laughs> or shovel-tusked
0: sloths, like shovel tussed claws, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The <laughs> And the
2: and the claws. Let's talk about the claws a little bit. Um, you know, the claws have a bone; they have a, a phalange bone in interior to the claw, and they're covered in a keratinized sheath. So they're basically covered in a material like our fingernails, and that material does replenish in the slot, throughout the sloth's lifetime. So you know, uh, it's not like they were going to run out of claw material if they tried to dig with the claws and wore down those claws a little bit. The claws would regrow. Very
0: good point. Another question. So this is coming up in the chat. Uh, this, I think, is related to a book you may be familiar with that came out. Uh, so, Beach has asked, uh, we'll put this one to Ryan because it's about living sloths. Although, if you have any insights about fossil sloths, that would be fascinating. Uh, I believe that this is related to the book that came out uh, Does it fart? Do sloths fart? And if not, how do they get rid of gas?
2: I, I believe they do produce methane. I don't, uh, I honestly don't know if they burp or fart. I don't know which direction the methane is is coming out, but there is some methanogenesis happening. Um, you know, they're they're a gut fermenter, so uh, the bacteria in their gut regulates the rate of their digestion, and they keep their stomach uh, full of solid plant material pretty much all the time. I was um I was working on a study with Becky actually that showed that. Um, the intake of food, the intake of leaf material is temperature dependent. And what that suggests is that it's actually the rate of bacterial fermentation that's driving how quickly sloths need to keep eating to keep their stomach full. Um, So if that's the case, it's actually, um, they would fart more when they're slightly warmer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: good to know that's good to know
2: just, when you, uh, i mean just like you know if you're like a home brewer and you ferment beer uh you know if you put the beer in just in a place that's just not quite right at th- the right temperature and then like shift it a few degrees into a warmer closet or something suddenly it's just bubbling up like crazy so i think sloths probably experienced similar bouts of indigestion based on uh how quickly the bacteria in their guts do its thing to Very worry about interesting. whether they're
1: sitting in the sun or not
2: <laughs> they do <laughs> they do sometimes the sun. They do sun themselves in the morning. That's another thought of um, that's another thought about the explanation of the suspensory position is that it's possible. uh, I don't know that anyone's actually tested this um, to try to get any quantitative data with like a light meter, but it's thought that uh, if you're in the tropics, you can actually get more direct incidental sunlight if you're hanging below the branch than perched on top of it.
0: How bad would the farts of a giant ground sloth have been? either
3: of you. <laughs> Horrible.
2: Uh, actually I have some ground salt <laughs> coprolites in the lab and they're honestly not unpleasant smelling. Um, they still main, they still have a lot of plant material in them. The digestion doesn't seem to be wholly that efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of kind of poorly chewed, uh, partially digested the, some of the, you know, I looked at under in the microscope and sometimes the cell walls aren't even broken of these plants. Um, <laughs> And so they kind of have like a faintly musty smell and it's kind of sweet. It's not, it's actually not altogether unpleasant. Um, and yeah, it's almost like a, a good mulch. That's oh, yeah. the and That's the, co- th- the cop.
0: To lose the, the really nasty smells.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: or is it because they're just an so old, the.
2: Right. They are desiccated. They're completely.
3: The oxidation is just worn itself
2: off right i'm sure a lot of the less pleasant aromatic compounds have broken down in the thirteen thousand years it took the light. but uh
0: so back on ground slots this is a question so will you have a question
1: i do i do sure. indeed, and it,
0: it's, it's a question that robert is very excited about oh lord <laughs> <laughs> I believe you.
1: so so this I, we've actually kind of touched on this a couple of times on uh uh you know whether or not they had similar metabolism or whether or not they had similar uh uh Endothermic properties as the modern slots. I've always wondered: would there be, is there any evidence, or would there be any reason why we would suspect that ancient ground slots would also be slow moving? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> no.
3: Yes and no. All right. So you get ones who are big, like Megatherium and Arimaetherium. Just because you're the size of an elephant, yeah, you're going to slow down a little bit, and you're going to be a little, a little lumber or something. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the next closest out groups, which are anteaters, and this is one of my favorite things when I probably brought it all the way home for me, I think I'd thought about this, but until I was down in Argentina and visiting a zoo and just watching this giant anteater, Mermicaphaeja just truck around its little pen, realizing Mm -hmm. this thing has basically the same metabolic rate because all the Xenarthrins have this kind of lowered metabolic rate Mm -hmm. to some extent. But this thing was not slow. You look at the other armadillos, not slow by any means. So why are our modern tree sloths slow? Well, it's because they're a tasty little morsel hanging out in a tree that can't really move. Well, they could move fast if they wanted to, but they're spending most of their time being passive. They're not really having any muscle mass. So when they do have to move, they can't really do it for a long burst. It's mostly about being cryptic and hiding themselves. Right. But if you had a terrestrial sloth who's on the ground and they came in all shapes and sizes, certainly they would have had to have been moving at a pretty decent clip. Hmm. And if we bring up Thallus ochnus, the aquatic sloth from Peru, the swimming one, I mean, we imagine because we have 5 to 10 million years of history of them kind of becoming more and more efficiently aquatic, that it wasn't just we found their fossils because they floated out into sea and could, well, I'm going to take one stroke, can't go very far, oh, I drowned. Stop. Yeah,
2: well, Robert, if they're so fast, how come they're dead?
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> because time makes
3: all of us... Fossils up. of us fossils all.
0: Fossils of yes. us all, yes. yes. <laughs> so the slow moving, the low metabolism, that really slow motion thing we associate with slots is very unique to the groups we have today. Yes. That's not like we were saying before that slots are weird mammals and you know, the platypus is a weird monotreme, and tree slots are weird slots. That's something. Very slowness, unique to
2: them. Yeah. Their slowness also seems to be a function of them. They, even though they live surrounded by food, uh, calorically, they kind of operate on the razor's edge of functionality. So they, because they have almost 0% body fat, they really don't have a calorie to spare. And so it's also a question of efficiency. Don't move unless you have to. Unless there's a good reason to spend a calorie, don't. And that's kind of how they operate.
0: But modern sloths can, like you were using the example of swimming, as if you moved super slow, you'd sink to the ground. But modern sloths can actually swim. They're actually... uh, Three-toed
2: sloths. Two-toed sloths don't tend to float as well. And part of that is, again, this fermenting gut um they they have kind of an internal buoyancy control okay right so they that's what we're talking about yeah so again it's like it's not as much uh it's a a function of being really efficient because without any body fat it actually would be hard to float so they need something to help them float because they're not gonna they're not paddling their legs fast enough like you said in the description when you see a swimming sloth they're kind of just pulling themselves along in a very slow and steady uh dog paddle and that's because they're not having to expend any energy to stay afloat because of this kind of bulbous uh, uh, bacteria-filled stomach. How do we know
3: they're not farting and using that as a outboard motor? <laughs> that's as not... a propellant.
2: <laughs> or burping, we'll be going backwards. Or burping, <laughs> go backwards. <laughs> yep. But then we also, I mean, but, but getting back, you know, there are some there are some <coughs> lines of evidence to uh, counter Robert's point because we talked about. We talked earlier about going into the caves as a thermal refuge, right? And so you don't need to go into it. Uh, you don't need a thermal refuge if you're moving around quickly enough to stay warm. So there is maybe something going on there where there was uh, not necessarily the inherent slowness we think of with modern sloths. But uh, I tend to to go on the side of uh, ground sloths probably had slower metabolisms than a comparably sized non-sinotherian mammal. That's my my personal hot take. um so, so, yeah. so it's not I wouldn't so say it's a strong girl, disagreement with Robert. It's just sort of a I have a put it on I put it on a slightly different spectrum and he puts it on. I'm okay with that.
3: <laughs>
0: Thank
2: goodness <laughs> yeah, these we two it in out. different states.
3: <laughs> well, Otherwise we'd have glasses and hug it out.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank thanks for the I always assumed that the slowness that they always get shown with is just connecting it to the modern ones. But it was I had that moment when we were setting this up and we we're like, well, I don't actually know. I have I have no info uh, one way or the other, so it's the people yeah. to ask.
3: It's probably yeah. the most common question I
1: ask I get asked. It makes I mean it's it's it what they're known sense. for nowadays. Yeah. I get it. Yeah.
0: Uh, Beej in the comments is remarking that you guys are dispelling a lot of myths and misconceptions <laughs> that they've heard elsewhere in the world.
2: <laughs> yep. Uh the Sloth Sanctuary of Costa Rica put out a book called um Ni osos ni perezosos, which means neither bears nor lazy. Um, because in Costa Rica, the common uh, term for a sloth is oso perezoso, which literally means lazy bear.
0: Lazy bear. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah.
2: Uh, I've heard That's... them also called monos perezosos in Panama, which would be lazy monkeys. Um, so they wrote a little book dispelling some of those those myths, saying, no, they're not bears, even though they're very <laughs> cuddly looking. And no, they're actually not. I, I like to say they're not lazy. They're just very efficient. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yes i like to say that about myself yeah no, i know right low, the it, it
2: methodical. Mm, yes. methodical. when you, you actually go. you know Find so out. so i do some <laughs> rock climbing and like watching a sloth climb there are lessons to be learned from for a rock climber uh in how they climb They actually are very good climbers they uh you know maintain three points of contact they're constantly testing their holds if you follow me on twitter my profile photo is me holding a sloth and the sloth looks like he has the claw like On top of my head and he's not uh trying to attack me or anything he's just testing the integrity of my skull as a thing to climb on (laughs) he just wants to see if i'd be sturdy enough for his body weight so so they're pretty good about you know maintaining an awareness of their surroundings and kind of kind of doing what they need to do to to stay happy
0: very cool hopefully he found that your skull was not something good to hang on
2: I, I put his, I very quickly put him back in the tree. I just couldn't resist the opportunity for a quick selfie.
0: <laughs> Here's another question about modern sloths. This one comes from Ashley, who wondered about the potential. Let's uh, start with Ryan, modern sloth guy. The potential for crossbreeding between two-toed and three-toed sloths, and if this would be possible uh, naturally or artificially.
2: I don't think so. I'm not a genetics person, but I would... Given the the scope of their evolutionary divergence, as you guys talked about in your episode about uh, 40 million years ago, the two lineages we think diverged based on molecular evidence. So I'd be very surprised if the chromosomes lined up. Um, and then you got to think of like, uh, you know, we go if we went 40 million years back, would you even be attracted to whatever our closest, you know, <laughs> yeah. divergent ancestor from 40 million years ago is like we're more closely related to chimps than that. So, you know, oh, yeah. are you sexually attracted to a gibbon? Probably not. <laughs> um so i i just wouldn't want to do that to a poor you know i wouldn't want to force them to to have to do that with someone they weren't into that just doesn't seem fair <laughs> yeah one of the
0: groups of sloths today and i don't remember which one because i'm irresponsible uh is in the is it the the same group as megalonics.
2: So that's actually, that debate. there was a talk at SVP last year that is uh, pushing this idea. And Robert can speak more to this. I'll just, I'll say it quickly. And then he can gripe. Um, <laughs> okay. pushing the idea that's that may, we might be getting ready to move the two toad sloths into myelodontids. So swapping swapping them out from megalinicids to myodontids. And then, yeah, three-toed sloths are in their own family, and the relationship of that family to other types of sloths is still a a hearty area of debate. Robert,
0: what say you?
3: Yeah, so that talk at SVP kind of... Ryan, I believe you had to jump on a plane, so you missed it. And uh, (laughs) and
2: I I was very upset when I heard uh, the reactions from the room, so I I wished I could have been there. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, our uh, small
3: enclave was sitting together, and we were a bit irate was not something we wanted to accept. But as we thought about it <clears throat> a little bit longer and later, we realized, all right, as any good scientist, in the face of new data and sort of overwhelming data, that you kind of have to accept it. So this is a mid project that's been going on. There's a couple papers out already. <clears throat> and it actually does highlight some of the previous molecular work. If you look at some of the earlier molecular papers, it kind of puts the only ones you had really for genetics and data. You had mylodon, myelodontid, calypus, the two-toed sloth, bradypus, the three-toed sloth, Nothothereops, might have been one other. Anyway, but it, the studies would usually put Caliphus and Mylodon kind of close together, but phylogenetically, we looked at the old trees, that didn't seem that far of a stretch. Mylodontids were the basal group, and then Megalonicids came after, so like, okay, there's just nothing to pull it apart. But with the media genomics getting a further look, it's kind of pulling the Calypus a lot closer to the Mylodontids, and as we look at some of the morphological characters, especially the ankle and a few other things, it seems to really further suggests that, okay, yeah, we do have some myelodontids who had these canina forms of sorts, that perhaps is just a shortened version that came about. And as it applies to bradypus, as Ryan said, they are in their own family, today, because no one's really known where to put them. But the genetics do kind of put it higher in the tree, and I've been pushing the idea for a little while longer that I think bradypus represents a kind of paedomorphic or a neonic state.
2: You're going to have to define that term. I'm about to
3: <laughs> So a, a group that retained juvenile characteristics as an adult if you look at the skulls they're so short and so snub nosed that there's no room a lot of times there's no room even for their anterior teeth that they have to lose them because they don't have the room
0: so they look like the baby version of their ancestors Mm -hmm. right
2: so sort of like how an adult dog looks more like a wolf puppy than an adult wolf and like
0: an adult human looks more like a
2: young member of any other ape group Yeah. Yeah. and so yeah this is an idea Robert and I've been kicking around for a while especially um, thinking about the question of like when did climbing arise? And if you look at uh, groups like anteaters, their closest living relatives, what do young anteaters do? They climb on their mom. Mm-hmm. They have shorter snouts, mm-hmm. like they ha- They so young anteaters, even the ones that live on the ground. So there's four species of anteaters. Three of them live in trees. One lives on the ground. But the one that lives on the ground, the young, just like baby sloths, the young climb up onto mom and hang on. So there is something about being a young xenarthran that comes with a little bit of climbing, um, so and that's kind of interesting. Giant... Uh,
0: Ground sloths crawl adorably all over their giant moms.
2: I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility. And uh, Robert and I have been talking about this idea for a while. And we're, I mean, it's honestly just been kind of a question of okay, how do we actually test this in a way that we can get a convincing answer to then present to the, the research community? So
3: I've got a way. We just need to do it.
2: We just need to finish the flux capacitor.
1: <laughs>
0: That's always That's what, what it is. Right?
1: <laughs> oh, Frank's you guys gone.
0: put that in the funding, in the grant proposal. Mm-hmm. Bugs Capacitor. Uh, on, on sort of that level, is there any evidence in fossil sloths of group behavior?
3: Little bit. again, Not a uh, ton. Not a whole lot. Again, uh, it goes back, the best one we know is with the megalonicids, specifically megalonics, that we've got a couple sites where we've had adults with juveniles. I think the best one, I worked on the dig a little bit, it was the Tarchio sloth from southwestern Iowa. They had a full-size adult no idea what gender but there was definitely a baby baby individual based on the kind of lack of fusion and the rounding of the scapula but then there was we found a fifth scapula like okay unless we had a three arm sloth that means there were three individuals here <laughs> and that third scapula was kind of in between the two so it wasn't a full on juvenile and it wasn't a full on adult it was somewhere in between so it seemed to be that we almost had this family grouping with these megalonicids or these megalonics who then died and luckily got preserved and at the cave, one of the caves in Alabama, again, there's a couple of family units there too, where we've got in close association a full-sized adult megalonics, and then some much younger juveniles, ones that are clearly juveniles, wouldn't have been out on their own. So we do seem to have that implication.
2: And we do know that there's a great degree of parental care in modern sloths and in modern anteaters, And so you're kind of covering your, you're covering the spacing of ground sloths within mm-hmm. those two groups. So when you see parental care, you know, that's, Uh, A first step towards maybe having a bit more social structure. And um, very recently, Becky and I have been hearing reports uh, from people in Costa Rica and Panama and other parts of Central and South America, where they've seen baby sloths with males. So not just with females. Totally it's uh, For three toed sloths, it's actually very easy to tell a male apart from a female. They have a, a patch of fur on their back that's very distinctive, <laughs> and you would be able to tell even from a pretty great distance. So you could be on the forest floor and looking up with a pair of binoculars. And you could probably tell that it's a male sloth pretty quickly, and it's also pretty obvious if there's a baby sloth hanging on to it. So we're starting to hear reports. Uh, we're working on getting some sort of confirmation, but it looks like there might even be modern sloths that have these little familial groups where there's some... Uh, paternal parental care which is is rare in some mammals so that's kind of cool that is very cool yeah i haven't told robert about that yet
3: no i'm mind blown over here <laughs>
0: <laughs> science is happening right here in this chat guys don't scoop me on that one
1: <laughs>
0: robert's right in the abstract right yeah. now no! like, what what, what? <laughs> where, where was the what do you have a latitude and longitude on that <laughs> so let's there's a few more questions i want to ask we can do these a little bit quicker um, this one's a bit, uh, let's let's do a little bit of sci-fi. This is from, oh, that last question about group behavior was from Thomas on Facebook. This one is from Melissa, who asks, if you could clone any species of extinct sloths, Jurassic Park style, to study their anatomy and behavior, assuming, you know, that that was possible. We don't have to get into that right now. Stay tuned, Common Descent listeners. <laughs> Which sloth would you bring back to life and why? Let's uh, go ahead, Ryan.
2: Oh, it's such a tough question. Um, you know, you talked in your episode, like the diversity of fossil sloths is huge. I mean, we're talking something like uh, 80 genera of, of sloths compared to the two today. Um, so it's a hard question. My my superlative mind wants to go straight to a megatherium because I want to see what the biggest one ever looked like and how it functioned. Uh, but from a behavioral kind of standpoint... Um, I think something like a thalus ochnus, the aquatic marine sloth, it'd be great to see what they did with, you know, if I tossed them out on the Galapagos and said, okay, go. Um, <laughs> but I think I have to go with the the megalonics, maybe specifically megalonyx Jefferson, because it was such a widely distributed animal um, from the tropics up into um, the Yukon territory of Canada and Alaska. We found them on top of mountains. We found them in sinkholes. We just, they're, They clear. We found them, you know, in California. We found them in West Virginia. Like they're everywhere. Um, So I think the successfulness of that sloth says to me that there's something special going on there, and I would love to learn more about what it is that made that animal such a successful, successful species for so long.
0: Sounds like a good choice to me. What do you think, Robert?
3: I love this question because I was scoping out all the questions coming up, and Melissa, who asked this, is one of our colleagues who's also a sloth worker. So, hi oh, Melissa. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you for the awesome question, Melissa. <laughs> and for me, I thought long and about this, but I would go with Mylodon darwinii is the one I would want to bring back for a couple of good reasons. One, I've worked on I've worked on aspects of the sloth for a while, but it's one that we know it actually had the dermal armor, <clears throat> the awesome yeah. It did some neat yep. stuff. But despite all that, and it was also embroiled in some crazy back and forth taxonomy problems for years, part of my dissertation, or side part of it. But despite all that, we have very little fossil evidence for it. Because it was embroiled in so many taxonomic discrepancies, we never had a good set of specimens. And so I did a paper a little while ago, did some of the forelimb of it. And I think finally, there's some people who found some additional specimens, but I want to know what the full thing looks like. And then because I am more of an anatomist and functional morphologist, yeah, I want to see what it can do in the living space, but then I also really want to be able to dissect it. So
1: I need to <laughs> it.
0: naturally. You want
3: to you want to resurrect two, one for the zoo, one for the lab. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's a scientist right there, folks. Um A couple of comments in the chat: some are funny, some are questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, something ugly suggests that your three armed sloth is the final boss of the Pleistocene.
2: I mean, you know, I was going to make a joke. I didn't want to cut Robert off, but it's like we did, they're so weird. That I wouldn't be that surprised, if we <laughs> like you know, it it would have to pass a few smell tests for me. But honestly, like it was, it's the sort of thing of like, of course they would grow a third arm <laughs> if, if anyone would, if I'm any mammal out there would.
3: I can't say that I didn't stop for a moment and go, well, maybe.
2: <laughs> um, we we joke at the sloth sanctuary of Costa Rica that, especially in regards to the three-toed sloth, which I consider a little more aberrant as mammals than the two-toed sloth, and we joke that like. If any animal was left here by aliens just to confuse biologists and just to like make it more difficult for us to understand what's going on on our planet like 10,000 years ago some cheeky aliens came by and just dropped off something from their planet and it happened to be this three-toed sloth and is you know that's why we can't figure out how they related to other sloths and that's why it's like you live for 25 years and don't seem to get old and like what's happening what is what's going on here so <laughs>
0: And speaking of weird sloth things, but actual weird sloth things, uh, Beege seems incredulous about the idea of an armored sloth. But yes, a uh, number of ground sloths had dermal armor within... Not like an armadillo, but they had armor... Uh, like you, ossicles, basically. Scoots. Like a little Scoots pebbles. Of armor. Little pebbles, yep. Built sweet, yeah.
3: Only within the mylodontid lineage, and not with all of them either. So at least whatever... Once the megalonicids and megatherides diverged off, they diverge off from a group that did not have those ossicles.
2: And what do armored animals have in common, Robert? They're slow! <laughs> <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> I can armor on a fast thing!
0: I know a bunch of skinks and crocodilians and glass lizards who beg to differ.
2: <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. enough. Mylodontids were ambush predators, if nothing else. We'll you yes. A- there you go. I'll agree with that. Mylodontid flots would lay in wait in the shallow bodies of water, and then... when other oh, lesser mammals
3: themselves off the cliff to fall
1: that's, that's <laughs> what I was thinking is just land
3: here is here is a historical
0: question uh, for either one of you that has an answer to this Cam on Facebook asks "What is what, what sloth fossil specimen has the most complicated story?
3: I guess I'll take the start with that one if you don't mind yeah right.
2: you're, you're going to have a better answer than I am yeah.
3: and if Cam's watching, shout out, hey Cam also no, he <laughs> actually lives like 20 minutes from me mm-hmm. so, oh really? yeah <laughs> Cool guy, budding budding paleontologist in the making. So excellent. Hope he's watching. Cool. Yeah. Uh, for me, I get, I got to go back to mylodon. At least the, so the original specimen of mylodon darwini was a mandible that Darwin brought back from his trip on the, the whole voyage of the Beagle. Brought it back. Owen described it, and Owen wasn't quite sure what to do with it. He named it. He gave it a did give that one a genus and species name. But then also one of the specimens brought back was this temporal piece that belonged to Glossotherium. He named it Gloss Ethereum, but then in Hemden hawed in his later publications. Which
2: means tongue beast, by the way. Yes, tongue beast. <laughs> Mylodon means molar tooth. But because Owen hemmed and hawed a
3: little bit, it left opening for people like Florentino Emegino, who loved to name anything new, to so just take off and run with it. And so for a long time, there was a lot of uncertainty as to what was Mylodon. We had the jaw, and it wasn't until a good 80-some years later, they found a full skull with this, well, they had a skull didn't have a mandible, but they found one that had the full skull, this very elongated snout with this kind of bony arch connecting the top of the nasals to the premaxilla, which you don't find in many other sloths. Finally had a mandible, and they could match it up, and they had calling gripotherium one of these 15 different names that were assigned to this thing. Finally, they could say, okay, this actually is Mylodon, and that kind of ended that, but it left a lot of confusion as to what was Glossatherium then thereafter. But Mylodon yeah. kind of started it all. Or the two are deeply connected.
0: Crazy. We did a whole episode. If if all this taxonomy stuff, naming and organizing
3: relationships, is
0: confusing to our listeners, check out episode ten. We did a whole episode about this. And if Very... I can say,
3: if I can say real quick, the second yeah. one, but it's not a specific specimen, but it's a group, and it's the genus Hapalops, which is this Miocene sloth, kind of megatheroid. It's at the base of the megatheriod tree. No one knew what to do with that, and they found a bunch of different ones. But the tax, the field work at the time was bad. Florentino Abigino, I keep bashing this guy.
2: It's so funny. You talk about him like he's still around doing work <laughs> that pisses you off. I love when you talk about him. It's
3: one of those. I've said if we build, if we build that time machine, we get that flux capacitor. I'm going back and I'm going to put the beat down on him. <laughs> <I know>. but, <laughs> but he named he named thirty species to this genus with no real description of them, no images and no drawings or whatsoever, no reference to specimen numbers. The museum in Argentina, in uh, Buenos Aires, that's supposed to have the largest collection of these specimens, has admitted that they don't even have them all. (laughs) There's so many that are missing. No one can revise this genus and the species because it's so problematic.
2: Wow,
0: historical (laughs) drama.
2: And then I think my my answer, which is a bit of a cheat, is there was a potential sloth fossil found on a peninsula in Antarctica. And it ended up not being a sloth, but for a long time I was just like, "Man, of like, as crazy as they get, you ne- you still it's still beggared belief that a sloth can make it to Antarctica." And it turns out they didn't. But it was for a while, and it was an interesting it's story there. Totally it's a matter remember.
3: of time. But it was an Eocene. I mean, it was Eocene aged though, wasn't it? So it was old, yeah, yeah. So how close was Antarctica to the tip of South pretty close Africa at that point? So yeah, without yeah. without the realm of possibility, says you. <laughs> <laughs> one if more question they to the caribbean they can swim to antarctica <laughs>
2: <laughs> did they swim or did they just kind of bob along in the current
3: farting <laughs> <along>
0: <laughs> across the circumpolar current both. <laughs> <laughs> one more question this is for ryan because it involves living sloths lauren on facebook asks do sloths have hair or fur and what does it feel like
2: I mean, i don't I don't believe uh, please chime in if you guys have opinions. I don't believe there's any actual physiological distinction between hair and fur. It's just I terminology. Yeah. so i i will, we'll call it fur just for the since just for ease of linguistics, but it's hair fur. um i I, I use the words interchangeably. Sloth hair is actually completely unique in all of mammalia. So in, in yet another way where they are unlike any other mammal that exists. <laughs> And three-toads and two-toads have completely different types of hair. And because we have fossils that were mummified in very dry caves, we actually have fossil sloth hair. So not only have I pet both two- and three-toad sloths, I've pet a and a Mylodon. So I've pet extinct sloths, um, which is amazing. And um, they've done, you know, even going back into the early 1900s, I think it was, was it Cope who did the, the, the little bit of... Uh, through Three Ops hair work, or it was, you know, one of the big names in paleontology had, had put some sloth hair under a microscope, uh, fossil sloth hair under a microscope, and even that hair is weird. So there's something going on that's weird about sloth fur. Um, both three and two-toed modern sloths have kind of grooves or canals in the hair that seem to be... Um, a good place for that symbiotic algae to grow, or I guess it's questionable whether or not it's actually symbiotic, but it seems to be that's where the algae is growing in these grooves. In the Three toed Lost, the grooves uh, run the circumference of the hair, um, so kind of stacked like little discs. And then in the Two Toads, they run the length of the hair uh, in a straight line. So they're not even consistent in their own <laughs> weirdness, and it's just crazy. The hair is very coarse, it's pretty stiff. And then um, Three toed sloths actually do have an undercoat because they have, again, they have so little body fat, they do have trouble thermoregulating, even in the tropics. So they actually have an undercoat of much softer, uh, almost downy type hair um, that is much more pleasant to the touch. And, and baby sloths in particular are very soft and wonderful. So, <laughs> so yeah, That's actually a really good question. One of my favorite papers about sloths is from the 1980s, and it's called Sloth Hair, Unanswered Questions. <laughs> And as far as I know, there have not been any substantial updates to that work. So we still have a lot of unanswered questions about sloth hair that
0: I'm so glad that I put that question last because (laughs) that question I was actually if I remember right, I don't have the whole thing here. But if I remember right, Lauren prefaced that by saying Everyone's asking all these scientific questions and all I want to know is, you know, what does sloth hair feel like? Mm-hmm. And I thought that's a fun, lighthearted little quick question to finish it off with. But that answer was fascinating. That was awesome. <laughs> this is why we do these kinds of conversations, people.
2: And that, and that male back patch that I mentioned is a very different, softer kind of hair, too. And they seem to have some sort of oily secretion that they put in the hair that maybe is a, a smell attractor to the females or something. So oh, variation must- even between males and females.
3: Very. Cool. I like up the hair. It's their own product. You got to make it glisten. <laughs> yeah, do a little
1: do. It's like hanging up an <laughs> air freshener in the car. just hang up a male sloth, and it'll...
2: <laughs> it's a very mild smell. It's not like a very strong smell. It's not as musky as as other mammals, since um sloths don't have a great sense of smell in general. But it's it's enough.
0: Very cool, gentlemen. Uh, one final thing: Is there anything that has not come up that you want to say about sloths? before we finish this uh, endeavor. Robert, let's start with you.
3: I think we've touched on it in a lot of ways, but just that sloths are just so freaking amazing. <laughs> there's a large fossil diversity. They filled every niche they could. They were was a w- weird way to do it, they sure as heck did. And there's so much more to investigate and answer. I'm so glad I found this group to <laughs> spend my life with. <laughs> That's excellent. And Ryan?
2: Um, I think sloths... You know, there's they're a fascinating group of mammals. They've done so many things that no other group of mammals have done throughout their evolutionary history, which makes them unique and wonderful and great to learn about from a purely academic sense. And I know Robert and I uh, can geek out. I mean, this is this conversation is not atypical. Mm-hmm. This is how Robert and I talk to each other, um, yeah. pretty much all the time. Um, but what I what I also will say from the bit a little bit more modern perspective is that we talked a little bit about some of the difficulties sloths have operating in the human world. And so I think um, for people that love sloths like we all do, I think it's important to consider that the world is only going to get to be a tougher place for sloths, uh, especially as climate change changes the growing cycle for the trees that they need to survive. It might even change the parts of the world where those trees grow in. We're already seeing plants start to move up mountains to to escape the, the heat. And um, animals like sloths are going to have a really hard time with that. And so... Uh, thinking about conservation, thinking about maintaining or or reducing forest fragmentation in the tropics as much as possible, all these sort of things. um, They're going to help out sloths in a big way, but... One of the really cool things I think about conservation when you go big picture of making sure the forest isn't as fragmented to help out the sloths is you're also helping out every other animal that lives there too. So I think sloths, I've often said, can be thought of as a little bit like the canary in the coal mine, but for tropical rainforests. And um, when we start seeing the sloths have a trouble, we know we need to do something to help. And um, I would encourage anyone who loves sloths and got a lot out of this conversation to look into uh places where they can maybe donate or help out and give some resources to uh folks who are trying to do conservation of tropical rainforests or sloths in particular
0: very good advice and in fact um, if you're interested in following a person who does a lot of work with sloss conservation in addition to folks like ryan our friend becky who once again not able to join us but follow becky on twitter uh, because she also works with this if she had made it uh, if she had been here we probably would have talked a bit more about conservation, mm-hmm. talking about her work. So, uh, so
2: Becky also founded. Um, so Becky, you know, finished her PhD recently, and we're, while Becky and I still have some research projects that we're working on, um, we also she has spearheaded the Sloth Conservation Foundation, which is a foundation yes. that she established. Uh, we call it slowco um, <laughs> for short, and uh, I'm a member of of the board in whatever capacity the group exists. So we're still kind of ramping up the mission and the actual, uh, implementable plans for what we're going to do with this organization. And, and Becky, I would, I would not want to step on Becky's toes by speaking out of turn with what her plans for it are, but that is an organization that she founded and that I'm, uh, tangentially a member of, and hopefully, you know, as we figure out, uh, exactly what we're going to do, there'll be more news and more ways to help sloths there. And you can go to slothconservation.com, uh, to learn more.
0: Excellent. Awesome. That is wonderful advice wonderful uh shout outs to that work i didn't realize you were a board member that's very exciting gentlemen this was fantastic thank you so much for joining us
2: it was great to be here i really enjoyed it sorry i cut out there a little bit at the beginning but i'm glad this uh weird car setup actually seemed to work out okay
0: yes it did i'm amazed (laughs) well done folks in the chat Thank you for being here. Anyone watching, anyone who's watching in the future, this will be left up on YouTube unless something goes terribly wrong in the the saving this process. If you're interested in hearing more from these wonderful sloth people, you can follow them both on Twitter. They've got their websites that they mentioned before, Sloth Search for Robert. Uh, Ryan, you have your own website and you also do Science Sort of, the podcast, a fellow paleontologist podcaster of ours. And... This has been such a roaring success that if you people in the world, any people in the world, would like to hear us talk to more scientists following up conversations about our topics in our episodes, let us know. If you want to see us do more things like this, we would love to do. I don't know that we're going to get, you know, these two are a great pair. We'll see if we can find <laughs> someone to match the, the quality of our guests here. Uh, yeah, we'd be happy to do more of it.
1: Absolutely.
2: And if you like the Common Descent podcast, go leave them reviews on iTunes because reviews are really helpful for getting podcasts visible in the podcast marketplace as a longtime podcaster. I can say that. And it's totally free. It only takes you a few minutes. Go do it. Help them.
0: Yes. Thank, thank you. you. Yes. And go listen to Science Sort of and do the same for them. Mm-hmm. They would much appreciate it. Yeah. And there's some people in the comments of this, in the chat saying they learned a whole bunch. That is awesome. Beach says that they unlearned some stuff. Also
3: very good. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say real quick, if you want to hear yeah, go ahead. Ryan and me dispel more myths about sloths, we did do a couple of two, uh, Two episodes of my podcast.
0: Okay. Actually, yeah, we'll get the links to those. If you want to send us the links to those, we'll share that. Yeah.
2: Drop bears of South America and the little Sothologist that could. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: excellent. Yes, please share those with us and we will send those around to our listeners. Great. Well, cool. Robert, Ryan, thank you so much for being here. Chat people, thank you so much for joining us. We will all be back doing our own thing in the future. And until then, uh, now now's about the time to sign off. We will see you all next time.
2: Bye. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me too.
0: Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.